And this is David, and this is our fourth episode of Base Layer. Today's episode, we have Will Peets, who is the CIO of Passport Digital. Will was on with us uh, today, and he talked about a host of different things, from risk management to valuations to his views on what the private markets are doing, and into even to uh, sources of information that uh, he thinks are important uh, for the future of evaluation of crypto assets. I thought it was a super interesting conversation. Amanda, did you have any takeaways? I thought my uh, biggest takeaway, because it's something I've been thinking about a lot personally, is the trade-offs between various stages of decentralization, you know, from, from fully decentralized networks to permission blockchains, and that as much as our... our you know, our hardcore cypherpunk, you know, internal people don't want to believe it. There are applications of blockchain technology that do fall in different places in the spectrum outside of pure decentralization. And I thought that Will had some really interesting views on those. Yeah, it's, I, I was a year ago, someone who said, you know, the notion of a permissioned distributed ledger was a big no-no. And even on Twitter, I, I consider myself a decentralist. But, you know, the more and more I think about it, I think we need to have baby steps. And while it's a tough pill to swallow, and I still don't necessarily believe that it's the greatest pill to swallow, you know, for overall adoption and to get some people in the room, it might actually be the best way to go forward. But time will tell. All right, guys, as a reminder, nothing on base layer is investment advice or legal advice or should be construed as such, including the views of the hosts and the guests. And on the flip side, after hearing from our sponsor, you'll hear the interview with Will Peets. Enjoy. Today's family offices and hedge funds lack appropriate technology to invest confidently in digital assets. Lumina provides institutional-grade portfolio management software specifically designed for crypto, helping institutions like yours manage, bookkeep, and trade digital assets. Use promo code BASELAYER for three months free. Sign up at www.lumina.app. Tonight's episode of Base Layer, we have Will Peets, who is the CIO of Passport Digital. Will, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I know Amanda and I have lots of questions. Will, you've been around for a while and you've seen lots of different markets. And so I think, you know, one of the first questions that I think a lot of people are thinking about, you know, these days is we've been in this crypto winter or bear market or whatever you want to call it these days. And so... You know, why don't you kind of tell you know the listeners a little bit about yourself and about what you guys are doing, if you can, and then you know maybe start jumping in and give us kind of opine about what you think is happening out there these days. 
Sure. So I guess a, a quick background on myself. Um, you know, my more formal background is in portfolio construction and risk management. I spent a, a handful of years uh, at Morgan Stanley, uh, or subsidiaries of Morgan Stanley, I should say, in risk metrics and Bora. Uh, actually came to Passport uh, as the head of risk uh, and <clears throat> kind of in parallel, you know, have been uh, doing personal venture investing uh, and also had invested in the crypto space. Again, I'd say as more of an enthusiast uh, for the last, uh, call it five years. Um, Passport, just to give a, a brief background, I would describe as a macro schematic uh, investment firm. Um, so we've long focused on identifying large uh, secular trends uh, from a top-down perspective uh, and then uh, formulate an investment thesis and, and a means for investing you know, on a bottom-up basis. And so as the firm took a more uh, kind of concerted view and focused view on the digital asset space uh, a couple of years back, um, you know, I started to spend more time and help formulate an investment thesis for the firm uh, on this, this space particularly. Um, and then at the beginning of this year, we actually formalized some strategies and a team uh, that invests directly into the broader um, digital asset ecosystem. So you know, from, from Passport's perspective, saw crypto and, and the broader digital asset space differently than, than many groups uh, in that we you know, kind of view it as, as a, a bigger shift in technology and it just being the one kind of subsector within that. Um, and that's really what got us, you know, again, to kind of focus on it from a top-down top, uh, top down perspective and then dedicate the resources on a bottom-up basis to investigate it further. What do, what do you think risk management – you come from a really interesting background in terms of risk management – and I would hypothesize that a lot of people who entered into the crypto asset space over the last two years might not necessarily have that background in terms of risk management. How would you define risk management and how would you define it in the terms of crypto assets these days? Sure. I mean, there's, there's certainly a lot of different ways to think about, you know, risk management. Uh, from one perspective, you're thinking about uh, protection of, of capital and, and principal that's invested. Um, clearly, there's lots of, of quantitative ways uh, to measure risk, whether that's you know, volatility, expected shortfall, uh, et cetera. Um, you know, I think in, in the context of crypto, you know, there's <clears throat> there's clearly a, a venture angle to investing in the space. And you know, if you were to ask a venture capitalist how they, they think about risk management, you know, that's clearly very different than someone who you know invests and trades uh, liquid markets. So. You know, again, there's there's a, a, a bit of a difference in opinion there. If you're a venture capitalist, you know, that might be in terms of how you, you know, how many bets you make on the space, you know, evaluation of the team, you know, broader understanding of, of the problems that they're trying to address, uh, <clears throat> et cetera, you know, with, with the hope that you have a higher hit rate on investments that ultimately, you know, work out. You know, on the um, you know, liquid side of the market, you know, clearly you're thinking about things that are more related to, you know, portfolio diversification, you know, liquidity of the portfolio, some of the quantitative metrics that I mentioned, you know, previously. Um, I, I think the challenge with, with the digital asset market in, in general is that a lot of the tools that you would be accustomed to using in a more traditional portfolio context um, have more or less been absent, right? So in 2018, you're for the first time seeing, you know, <clears throat> more uh, liquidity, um, and traditional instruments, whether that's you know futures on the CME, um, we're seeing more players enter the market that are offering derivatives. Um, 
so there's there's a lot of of you know developments uh, in the space that will help to to manage risk, but it's it's still I'd say kind of in a transition period. I think again, 2018 we made a lot of progress. I'm excited about 2019 from that perspective. You know, another thing worth noting is just the ability to short and source borrow. You know, I think Genesis's OTC desk launched or their lending desk launched in March of 2018. So that gives you a sense of, you know, they're amongst the first institutional desk to provide uh, lending. It gives you a sense of still how early we are. You know, but now there's a handful of exchanges and, and many more on the horizon, you know, that will offer that in, in 2019. So again, a lot of the, the traditional portfolio management characteristics or, or methodology, I should say, risk management methodologies, um, you know, are partially dependent on the availability of a liquid market and certain types of instruments, uh, and that's just now you know, kind of coming to, to fruition and becoming available. So, reflecting on 2018 markets, then, so we've talked a lot about expansion uh, on the institutional side, but I think that an important theme that people have looked at as we've entered this uh, crypto bear market is risk management on the side of the builders themselves, right? Like, we've seen things like Ethereum Classic development shut down. Uh, there's quite a few projects that are facing liquidity issues. So what what do you think uh, people can kind of take away from these 2018 lessons as they go into 2019? Yeah, I mean, I think 2018 as a whole, um, you know, is definitely a year of, of transition. You know, I'd say 2017 was, I would call more of a year of awareness. Now, clearly there's people that have been involved in the space for a long time and have been tracking it closely. So, you know, maybe the developments in 2017 were less of a, of a surprise, but given the, the dramatic price action and all the hype that was generated around that, um, you had a lot of, call it free advertising as to, you know, the, the evolution and, and the presence of, of the cryptocurrency market. So I think in 2018, you had, you know, uh, some you know, coming back and, and coming back to reality and, and, and grounding of the space and, and a recognition that, you know, the, the valuations and the hype were, you know, far exceeded where the technology uh, the current state of the technology. So I think that's that's part of it. You know, I think you've had a lot of um, progress, you know, all, albeit still a work in progress on the regulatory side and providing guidance on uh, how projects will be able to, uh, you know, fund themselves going forward, um, you know, the types of business models that will exist in this space, you know, whether or not you need a native token, you know, a lot of things that you know, weren't really scrutinized in 2017, started being scrutinized a lot in 2018. I think it's kind of setting the groundwork for how the space will you know, evolve going forward. Um, so, I, you know, those, those are, I guess, maybe two high-level uh, observations. Um, I, I think, you know, again, this this transition in the ICO market broadly maybe is, is kind of the best reflection of the change that we've seen. You know, last year, for example, you know, there was very little scrutiny at all uh, applied to you know, groups, projects raising ICOs. You know, that meant that there's, you know, no transparency into the vesting schedule. You know, there's uh, no real recognition of, of um, you know, the, the regulatory landscape. Um, you know, very little, again, alignment of, of interest between investors and will-be projects. And you've seen the pendulum shift back some where, you know, many of the the deals now, you know, are limited to more accredited investors. The structure, again, has uh, some more kind of governance and investor rights that are built into it. Um, 
And so, you know, certainly that's, that's a learning for a lot of the people who invest in this space. And it's also, you know, a learning for people who are, you know, building projects and raising capital in the space. You're touching on some aspects of maturation, you know, 2017, 2018, into what we're seeing going into 2019. And one of the things that I've been trying to rack my brain about every day, you know, you hear people talking about, oh, this is the internet, 93, 94. Um, You know, this is kind of like Mosaic going into Netscape, Netscape going into email. Um, You know, where, what kind of comparisons, you know, you've been around, again, around the block for a little while. What kind of comparisons can you derive from where exactly are we right now you know, in my opinion, I think, you know, some of the things that I've categorized, kind of said publicly is that we've put the carriage before the horse, that we, everyone got very excited about this shiny new toy that is crypto. And you had a lot of the, you know, some of the institutions coming in really, you know, quickly this year, because they saw that there was, you know, potential yield in a fairly yieldless environment, you know, fixed income, you know, overall has been fairly yieldless. You know, the public equity markets, in my opinion, have been overvalued for quite some time. And so where are we in this process and in, in, in kind of this evolution right now, in your opinion, based off of what you're seeing now, based off of what you've seen in the past and kind of your past experience? Yeah, you know, I, I think I think we're on the earlier side of things. If I were to just, you know, make an analog to the early 90s and the development of the Internet. So I would say it's closer to 94 than, you know, the, the late 90s or the, the 2000s. Um, I, I do think, you know, some of the projects, you know, like, let's say, Pets.com, for example, which is kind of the poster child uh, at the time. Everyone picks um, on Pets.com. You know, kind of, <laughs> well, you know, the, I, I like that example for, for a couple reasons. And it's, it's actually, you know, in part because Pets.com, you know, I think it's called Chewy, but it, it exists today. And it wasn't that the idea was bad. It was just, it was ahead of, just to use your word, the cart before the horse in terms of where the technology was, yeah. right? So we didn't have last mile delivery and a number of other things that make, you know, Chewy.com and Instacart and other services like that, you know, possible. So it's not necessarily that the idea wasn't, um, you know, a, a good one. Again, it was just too early. And I think 2017 you had, and even now, you have a lot of ideas about the potential application for, you know, distributed uh, ledger technology, broadly speaking, but it's just too early for a lot of those to actually, you know, come into existence. And so it's not, it's not a statement on the value of the technology, just like, you know, pets.com and the hype at the time wasn't a statement on the value of the internet. It's just purely a function of where we are in the development of the underlying technology. Now I will say that, you know, while, while I would put us, you know, earlier or closer to 94, I, I think the, the speed of change and the speed of adoption is going to happen, you know, much faster um, than people expect and certainly on a shorter timeline than it took for, you know, the development of the Internet. Um, there's another you know, manager that we work with closely um, who has a line saying how the, the Internet would have been developed faster had we had the Internet, you know, which is a little bit cheeky, but... Huh. It makes a lot of sense, right? You, if you had, you know, GitHub and a number of other tools that allowed for collaboration, um, clearly the internet would be <clears throat> have been developed much faster. And so, you know, we're, we're starting our, our starting point for this next, you know, large shift in technology is one where we have a lot of these these tools in place. And so, when I look at, 
you know, roughly, um, you know, like take, take some of these block explorers or something like MetaMask, right, which allows you to, to interact with various, various decentralized applications. I mean, the, the, the speed for which we'll go from, you know, MetaMask to either a new version of that or to, you know, native wallets and, and uh, blockchain explorers and Opera, which has already been announced, you know, to the next, um, you know, when, when Google does something similar with Chrome, uh, to phones that are coming out with native, you know, crypto wallets or an operating system, again, that can interact with, with DAFs. And that's going to happen, you know, much more quickly. So when you think about, again, the browser and Netscape and then kind of fast forwarding to the more mature technology companies that we have today, I just think that's going to be, you know, extremely um, compressed. <clears throat> so, and then I don't want to jump around too much, but you also mentioned some points um you know, about, I, I think you're alluding to kind of valuation of the crypto market and how that relates to kind of broader valuations in the overall, um, you know, equity market or broader capital markets. Yep. And, you know, part of that being potentially uh, driven by, you know, very, um, you know, easy monetary policy, you know, post 2008 low interest rates and this kind of search for yield. And that, that's, um, you know, an observation where I, I understand you know, the, the rationale and it coinciding with, you know, record high valuations and, and the equity markets, you know, high valuations, even the private markets. I, I'm, I'm not convinced, though, that the, you know, the, the risk taking and the valuations of crypto um, have that much of a relationship. I mean, it, it's certainly potential that in 2017, you know, there's there was speculators and people who knew very little about crypto, you know, that were... <clears throat> going ahead and, and allocating, you know, 10,000 to Bitcoin and just cause it, it felt like play money. And so I can see that definitely contributing to this blow off top that we had last year, but at, at a, you know, kind of macro level, you know, the asset class, even at its peak was only, you know, call it 850, 900 billion. It's still, you know, more or less a rounding air for, for capital markets. And, you know, there's not a lot of traditional allocators, you know, who are making the decision to allocate into crypto. Like there's, there's a handful of reports out there that I've read where they're, you know, it's kind of a pitch of like, oh, XYZ pension fund or endowment had you allocated to Bitcoin over the last three years, you know, the risk adjusted return of a typical 60-40 portfolio would have been, you know, this much better. And I just don't, I don't buy into that at all. Like the, the asset class wasn't investable, wasn't big enough, wasn't liquid enough. There was and no there was, custody. There was no custody solutions. The allocators that were making that decision. There's no custody solutions. There is no infrastructure at that point in time. Exactly, exactly. So it's it's just it's you know it, it's like it's providing it's like having a benchmark that's not investable. Like it's it's kind of pointless to have the benchmark because you could have never obtained it. And that's that's how I feel about those studies. I think it's you know the the case for the asset class is more you know what what sorts of industries will this technology disrupt that an allocator already has exposure to such that on a ex ante basis, you know, that'll be a diversifier to the portfolio. And to your point, it has to come at a time when there is a necessary infrastructure to allow people to, to allocate. So even in this most recent few months where you've had, you know, a drawdown in Bitcoin in the broader crypto market, which has coincided with, you know, weak performance and, you know, the uh, kind of global stock market and, and tech stocks in particular, you know, I, again, I feel that that's much more coincident than it is causal. Um, 
largely because, again, there's not really that many allocators who are making that decision to, oh, I need to trim risk assets and go into you know, state haven securities. Um, I think, hopefully, if the space matures over time, then you'll start seeing more of a, 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 a causal relationship. And I think, again, we're getting kind of further off off topic, but you can make a case where, you know, Bitcoin could act as a state haven asset and have a, you know, low or negative correlation with, you know, broader markets. You can make the case that, you know, certain applications technology will disrupt, you know, other industries, whether that be in finance, tech, et cetera. And that'll, you know, that'll drive those future correlations, um, you know, in, in a way that I think we haven't seen yet. There is no off topic on this conversation tonight, Will. <laughs> I, th- <laughs> I, I, I think we're, we're getting some, some gold here. So Amanda, what about you? What do you, what, what questions do you have for Will? Um, so I wanted to touch on something you said about, you know, when, when people with crypto look at different uh, industries within it and applications of the technology, because I think that at least coming from the institutional side and from the institutions I worked with at previously, crypto is kind of this um, catch-all analog for anything token, blockchain, um, tangentially crypto-related. Really, once you get into it, there's kind of a diverse array of applications of the technology. There's a very big difference in interest in investing in uh, a private blockchain network related to healthcare versus investing in something like Bitcoin, which is aiming to be a, a form of digital gold of sorts. Um, so from mm-hmm. a market thematic perspective, are there any particular industries within crypto that you see as potentially strategic going forward? If you can do so, that. So, yeah. So, I mean, a big picture, I, I think, you know, there's there's the potential for the technology to disrupt, you know, almost every or, or have an impact. I hate the word disrupt because it's overused here in, in San Francisco. But, you know, that, to impact pretty much every industry, you know, I think what needs to happen first, though, is some of this, this base infrastructure specifically around, you know, trading, lending, um, you know, that, that's going to be required before you can kind of have these additional uh, applications. So uh, I, I do view, you know, the, the rate of change and development in, you know, those, those kind of categories I just mentioned into kind of broadly, you know, financial and market technology and, and maybe commerce as being, you know, areas where you'll see, um, early development only because it's going to be a requisite for, I think, the development for uh, other parts of, of the ecosystem. You know, on the on the, on the point of, of kind of permission blockchains versus, you know, permit, permissionless, uh, you know, I actually see uh, an application for um, permission blockchains currently, and this is probably a, a point of view, at least within uh, the, the crypto investment community that is not widely shared in part where everyone's very focused on, you know, pure decentralization are, are highly networks that have a high degree of decentralization, they're permissionless, and it's had very specific use cases. I think, you know, the technology hasn't evolved enough such that you can have a permissionless chain solve lots of types of, of problems. So, for example, um, you know, there's a, a project that it's a permission chain, you know, the idea is that you'll are they're bringing together a lot of different financial um, institutions. The reference design or kind of initial use case will be on-chain origination of home equity loans. And those loans will then be originated on-chain, they'll be traded on-chain, they'll be serviced on-chain. You know, everything will be done within this, this um, permissioned um, you know, blockchain. Now, 
at the current state of technology, you know, it more or less has to be permission because clearly it's a highly you know, regulated industry. Um, the people who can originate loans that can participate in that market, you know, have to be regulated by you know, a number of different institutions. And so, you know, the, the permission to nature of it uh, is, a, is effectively a way of, of enforcing you know, governance. Um, you know, furthermore, you know, the, the necessity for this to be permissionless and, and highly decentralized, you know, in order to get value out of it, you know, doesn't exist. I mean, in, in the, the, the case of this network, you know, the token is effectively acting as a notary. So it's being, you know, moved from party A to party B to record, you know, the issues of a loan, the sale of a loan, the payment of interest, et cetera. And then the, the fees that that network generate are being distributed to token holders on a pro rata basis. So the token itself is, you know, effectively an equity security, but you're reducing all of the kind of idiosyncratic risk that you would have in a normal company of, you know, people making decisions and various, you know, extraneous factors that might impact the performance of a business. Because really, you know, the, the process for issuing loans and doing all the, the actions I just mentioned, and those are largely rules-based. And you can largely, you know, create a, a, a system that enables um, and enforces those rules without having, you know, the need for, again, a very involved corporate structure. And as a result, you can reduce the cost, you know, of, of that ecosystem. And so, you know, it, it's an example where I think a, a permission chain can add a lot of value. It's clearly very different than, you know, what the likes of a, a Bitcoin or Monero or other, you know, permissionless chains provide. But I think it, it is have a, a place currently in a value add. Now, you know, maybe five years from now, you know, on-chain governance will be such that you can, you know, um, <clears throat> accomplish the exact same uh, process on uh, Ethereum or some other you know, smart contract platform. Just at the current state of technology, you know, that's, you know, we're not there. And so I think there is a lot of value, uh, you know, to, to, to be had there. So it might go the way of kind of the internet versus the internet where for a while everyone was talking about everyone having their own, you know, internets. And now we have, you know, internet has you know, firewalls and other things, but we're all using, you know, one network. And maybe that's how it evolves. But I think, you know, in the near term, there's certainly, I, I could see cases for, for both. Where do you think, in terms of, you know, from a public market, from a public perspective, obviously the, the the market cap has been fairly well hammered down from the highs, the at you know the at the uh, the ATH of, you know, roughly eight hundred billion dollars to I think we're hovering around one hundred twenty two billion dollars now. You know, where do you think, in terms of you know, as an investor in you know public and private markets? We've seen still some fairly lofty private market valuations. You know, I always reference hash, uh, Hedera Hashgraph at over $6 billion. We've seen other ones out there that have raised a fair amount of money on the private side. Where do you think in 2019, in terms of valuations, where do you think, you know, that might start uh, having an effect in terms of what's happened on the, on the more public liquid side? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I, I think a lot of these projects do represent a, a large overhang uh, for the market as a whole. You know, I think you have to see, excuse me, examples of some of these projects go live with the mainnet and real utility being derived for them in order to justify those valuations. Now that we've had, you know, kind of call it a sobering of the market and, you know, the market being, as, as you, you highlighted, you know, the, the valuation coming in quite substantially. 
So, you know, looking into 19, again, I, I see that as a, a large potential overhang. Um, you know, I think there's a handful of projects that you know, probably will never launch and, you know, how that, how investors are repaid or not repaid. We'll see how that, you know, that plays out. You know, clearly one high profile project recently that returned capital investors was, was basis. And that was one of kind of 10 or 12 projects that had raised, I think in excess of 50 million last year uh, that had yet to, to launch. Um, but there's, you know, Telegram, uh, Hashgraph, T-Zero, a number of others that are <clears throat> to launch. And, you know, again, in the absence of being able to, to demonstrate, you know, utility or justify those valuations and in the absence of kind of broader sentiment of the market picking up, again, I think those will, will have a large overhang uh, you know, in the market. So one of the things that goes along with that overhang is the idea of crypto correlation. So if you look at crypto assets, it's, it's I don't know the exact number, but it's something in excess of 90% correlation amongst crypto assets. And when you look at something that's, I think the perfect example of valuation over, overhang is looking at Ethereum Classic right now is worth around $500 million, despite the fact that the biggest developers of Ethereum Classic just shut down due to a lack of funding. So do you see uh, the removal of this valuation overhang as the point at which crypto becomes less correlated amongst itself? Or do you think that's still a ways off? Yeah, that's a good question as well. I, you know, there's a lot of things that play into the high degree of correlation within the market, and, and part of it's related to some things I mentioned earlier on you know, the tools that are available for price discovery, right? So, you know, part of the reason why Ethereum Classic still has the value that it does is that you know, your ability to borrow and short Ethereum Classic is relatively limited, right? So that's actually one coin that you know, Genesis offers. Uh, on their uh, OTT desk um, to, to short, but there's not a lot of other venues where you would be able to short you know, Ethereum Classic. So that's that's one factor. Um, yeah, the, the 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 another factor is that for the longest time, right, the the highest trading pairs or the trading pairs are largely crypto to crypto, right? So you know the, the most widely traded would be Bitcoin relative uh, trading pairs, you know, followed by Ethereum relative trading pairs. But you're, you're in this closed ecosystem and Bitcoin effectively is kind of the reserve currency for the overall market. So that certainly also um, drives a lot of, of, of the correlation uh, within the space. Um, and the third category you could say would be the, the lack of um, you know, a, a stable coin or fiat pairs or a way to effectively get on you know, the, the, the sidelines. Um, you know, we're seeing some progress uh, on that front this year, you know, you've had, of course, a lot of noise around Tether, um, but we're starting to see Tether, you know, slowly be reduced uh, in terms of relevance. So I think right now it probably stands at around 1.8 billion um, in, in capitalization. And you're seeing, you know, the likes of a number of regulated dollar-backed stable coins, you know, whether it be from, you know, Circle or PAX or Gemini or, you know, TrueUSD, a number of others, you know, that will fill that void. I think by, this is actually the mail I get every week, but I think we're sitting around 650 million uh, in value for, you know, the, the cohort of would-be replacement to Tether. So I think if you have more of those in the market, you know, that also helps reduce, um, you know, cor correlation uh, in the space. And then I think the fourth, which is probably, you know, arguably the most important is that, you have to have fundamental drivers of the valuation of these protocols, right? And, and right now, because the technology is so early, 
you know, all that value is largely speculative. There's no one that's, you know, there's, there's no good metrics or developed, you know, applications that can be used to derive a solid, you know, fundamental valuation for a network. Now there's lots of, of, you know, ideas out there on how to approach that. But I think until you really have, again, adoption and metrics on usage, and if it's, you know, Ethereum, you know, how much is, how much gas is being used in the network, you know, whatever the metric becomes, uh, you know, that helps drive a fundamental valuation, which then helps drive a basis of where the market should be as a whole. And since that's lacking, again, everything trades largely on sentiment um, and drives this, this high degree of, <coughs> of correlation. Um, so those are a number of factors that I, I think are, are, you know, going back to your original question, that, that drive the highest degrees of correlation and allow something like Ethereum Plastic to maintain, you know, a, a lot of, you know, a high degree of market cap, despite there being some, you know, seemingly clear signs that there's not going to be a lot of future development or, or utilization. I mean, if you really want to take it to the nth degree, you can look at Dogecoin, which hasn't had any sort of, well, it was converted to ERC-20 recently, but otherwise it's had very little, you know, development activity and still maintains a large, a large market cap. So you can't really make a lot of sense of that. Um, and I also think that you still need to see some compression and some divergence between high quality projects and lower quality projects before I can feel like this market has actually kind of found a bottom and has, you know, started to mature more, you know, different applications, different protocols, and they could be, you know, focused on a means of exchange. They could have privacy features, they could be smart contract platforms, et cetera. Um, and clearly every protocol has the ability to, you know, in theory, you know, fork, adopt, um, you know, features, um, of, of other protocols. So I think that's kind of an interesting question that sits out there as to how this whole space evolves, um, and, you know, how many different protocols you actually ultimately need. Um, and then you have, you know, kind of the next step, which I'll call a meta protocol. And that's also a bit nebulous, but they could be, you know, things like, you know, oracles or prediction markets or, you know, other protocols that effectively enable a smart contract uh, platform, you know, to, you know, to operate uh, appropriately. Um, and so, again, I think there's a handful of, of uh, different protocols within that subset that, you know, are, are required and could, could have um, or be needed for this, this space to mature. Um, and then there's, yeah, I guess your, your question is probably more focused on the, on the permissionless side of things, but there's also just the, the maturation of the industry as a whole and what's required for that. And I, I think, you know, we've, we've touched on, of course, you know, custody and, and various trading venues and liquidity um, as being some requisites. Um, but I also think it's just kind of broadly, you know, education on the space um, and what, you know, I, I think that's been kind of a, a big piece missing, you know, over the last couple of years, that this is finally starting to get um, a, a bit more airtime. It's what we're trying to do here. <laughs> um, one last question that I have for you, again, thanks so much for taking the time to join us, is in terms of crypto market data, so I think that you touched on a lot of infrastructure that you built from a financial side, uh, including tools for investors to make good decisions, but the data at its core, I think, still suffers. So if we say public market equities data is let's say an eight. I won't give it a ten because you know every data has, every data source has its flaws. But if public market equity data is an eight, where would you put uh, crypto data specifically 
data around exchange volumes? Uh, well, I would say, you know, one to two. <laughs> um, and, and I would say that across, I mean, beyond just exchange volume, but, but just, you know, data in general. And, and so exchange volume, of course, suffers from a handful of things. You know, one, you have regulated versus unregulated, unregulated exchanges. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about watch trading on a handful of venues. Um, you know, there's whatever speculation around the use of, excuse me, tether in some instances. Um, so, you know, because you have unregulated exchanges and, you know, there's a lot of market participants, again, that are kind of incentivized for you know, what would otherwise be thought of as, as kind of bad behavior in traditional markets that clearly um, blurs um, and kind of skews uh, the, the, you know, the, the accuracy of, of trading data. So I think that over time, you know, will improve just as the, the, the regulated venues um, come online and more volume, you know, starts being directed to those, um, whether that's because there's institutional adoption and they can only trade on certain platforms because, you know, a lot of these altcoins go the path of, of just kind of fizzling out and not having liquidity you know, there'll be lots of factors. So I think you know, there's a couple of things that will improve data there. Um, you know, there's, there's also a general kind of lack of transparency on, you know, token ownership, um, you know, the, the liquidity or vesting schedule of, of tokens at different projects. Um, I know that's something that, you know, groups like Masari are trying to collect data on uh, to, to help address. Um, but that's, you know, a, a large blind spot, you know, in the space. Um, and then, you know, the, the third part, which is probably not too critical now because a lot of these apps aren't being, you know, projects aren't being, um, you know, utilized, at least not in the way that they're ultimately intended, is just on exactly that, like, network metrics, whether that's, you know, some of the stuff that blockchain uh, <clears throat> um, and info provides in terms of number of wallets and transaction volume, you know, on-chain. Um, but you can see that being you know, being much, that's a very rich data set that will be, you know, it, 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 the benefit is that it's observable, but you'll need tools in order to to analyze that, right? So it's some of these kind of block explorer type tools or firms that, you know, continue to, to innovate such that you can get down to the granularity of, you know, how often, you know, a certain smart contract, you know, is actually being utilized. So I think right now the data set is, is very limited. There's a tremendous amount of noise um, and you know, that's, that's clearly a one of many inhibitors for, for understanding and analyzing the space. Well, that's about it, Will. Uh, we've had you for about 45 minutes. I think you've given us a lot of good insight into your mind, into what you guys are thinking for you know this year and to next year. Um, we thank you for joining us on Baselayer and uh, hoping to have you back again. Um, again, uh, this was Will Peets, CIO of Passport Digital, and uh, looking forward to seeing you on the road again, Will. 